So, it was half-term last week. I don't know what arrangements that you had to make in your respective homes these days for half-term. But uh, uh, my son... I just noticed that the children weren't going to school. So. <laughs> Legally. <laughs> why, why are you still up here? But why are you not... Oh, it's half-term. Yeah. Well, all my, right on it. I'm all over it. My, uh, my son is 13, so he had, he had quite a lot of homework to do after, over half-term. So in the mornings, he would do his homework and talk to his friends and read a book while I did my homework for this and <laughs> read a book and talked to my friends. And then in the afternoon, Miller pair a feast <laughs> which co- would convene for half term film club Middle right so oh, we yeah. so we had like Middle a three Middle light yeah, yeah three, we had we had a three uh, yeah that's me i'm Miller light <laughs> we, we had like a three o'clock film every day and so we watched we, we did the classic films because these films aren't on oh, TV so much anymore right yeah, so we yeah, we watched the searchers Brilliant and we film. watched the third man and we watched the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and we watched Die Hard with a Vengeance, so all the classics. The one that he enjoyed most that we watched uh, was Casablanca. Uh, now, it's been a few years since I've seen Casablanca. It's a good movie. The thing about Casablanca is not only is it a good film, and not only is it a great piece of art, but because it's a great piece of art, it, we, we watched it, and I was saying to him, this is really distressingly relevant yeah. to the world that we're yeah, actually absolutely, living in absolutely. right now. Yeah. You know, the extent to which it's about the problem of refugees and immigrants and fascism. And there's just elements in the brilliant in the third man as well, yeah. that sort of post-war Europe. You know, you sort of feel that out of all that kind of, you know, Harry Lyme kind of gun running. Yeah. I mean, you know that brilliant scene in the the cooker clock scene, which was mostly mm. improvised by Wells. Wells, it is. Yeah, that's right. And of course, the marvelous soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, love, but I, the but the film the film thing was really it's really great to be watching these things with somebody who, at whatever level you, you know, one, one is, one is a, a propagandist for one's own child, of course, mm. all the time, but at some level you think, oh, will they, will the they go for this, will movie, they go for it? Old movies really are, I mean, it's hit and miss. I, we do a thing where we, we alternate. So this weekend was Rory's 15th birthday, and he's a massive Japanophile and uh, a huge Hayao Miyazaki film, mm. a fan. So he said, we're going to watch one of the early ones. Uh, he said, but he said, I said, what's it like? Is it good for a Saturday evening? He said, ah, oh, looks like it might be quite sad. Actually, <laughs> the title gives it away. Grave of the Fireflies. Holy <laughs> God. <laughs> I mean, bleak doesn't even begin to. I mean, it's just, I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but everybody dies. Um, and it was brilliant. But, I mean, God. I'm always curious how far you can push kids. And now on BBC One, the person's Doctor Who, and then uh, Generation Game, and then Saturday Night of the Movies. Yeah. Yeah. My neighbour Totoro, it isn't, is it? No, no. no. Should we? Oh, yeah, let's go. go on. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. You join us as we're all togged up in our finest 18th century finery in a drawing room just off the main ballroom of our sponsors, Unbound. <laughs> These introductions are getting more and more baroque. They're getting rococo. Rococo. The website which brings authors and readers together to create fabulous books. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is Jonathan Gibbs, a.k.a. 
at Tiny Camels on mm. Twitter. Yeah. Uh, hello, Jonathan. Hi there. Jonathan is an author whose debut novel, uh, Randall, was published in 2014, uh, published by our friends at Galley Beggars. Uh, and he also writes for The Guardian and the TLS and lectures in creative and professional writing at St Mary's University in Twickenham. The book Jonathan's coming to talk to us about is The Snowball, The Snowball, by Bridget Brophy. And about Bridget Brophy in general. There's so many interesting things to say about her. And yeah. Another yeah. woman from the 20th century who <laughs> we perhaps hasn't, to read, hasn't yeah. had her full due. Yeah. We will get on to that in a moment. Uh, but first of all, uh, I'm turning to my colleague, as is traditional <laughs> on these occasions, to say, uh, John, what have you been reading this week? Well, I've been reading this week. I, in fact, I've been rereading because I got the most delicious thing happened to me this week. The estimable people at Little Toller Books, who are a terrific publishing house based in the, down in the southwest, who really totally dominate now the reprints of classic and new indeed books about landscape and the countryside nature sent me a package of books including one of the books that I love most in the whole world which is I know I'm beginning to sound like a bit of a bore about shepherds but uh, this book is <laughs> A Shepherd's Life by W.H. Hudson which ah, I think okay. is I think is my favourite book kind of natural history monograph of all time it's a sort of it's a record of one shepherd. But Hudson himself is just this kind of extraordinary protean figure. He, he was born in Buenos Aires to American parents, so grew up in Argentina on the mm. pampas uh, as farmer and came over here in the late 19th century um, and kind of carved out a living as a sort of a, a jobbing writer, uh, but spent quite a bit of time, uh, about a bit of his time uh, in uh, Wiltshire and Salisbury Plain. And this book really is the account of his time there. Uh, it follows uh, the life of a shepherd, uh, Caleb Borkham, um, and it's a kind of it's a it's a whole the whole of a shepherd's life, but it's also the, the the people that he knows and that he meets, and I think people who like love Hudson and they include Conrad and D. H. Lawrence, and um, I mean I think Adam Thorpe, wonderful novelist Alverton, who wrote the introduction to mm. this little toller edition. There's something about him being an outsider which makes it... It's not, it's not tinted with nostalgia in the same way that some of those narratives are. You know, Richard Jeffries... Richard Jeffries was a local boy writing about what was passing. Jeffries, I'll read a tiny little bit in a moment. Jeffries does that, but he... Uh, Hudson does that, but he does it with a kind of a robustness. I mean, the, the language... I think Conrad said once, he writes like grass grows. It's sort of like, you know, you've got to be sympathetic to Conrad. He, was writing in his third language by this stage, but <laughs> couldn't have been easy. But Hudson does have this thing, this amazing kind of... So I'll read you a little passage to get a flavour. I mean, if you're... This is about 1909, yeah, 1909. So it's the classic... It, what it is is the period, the pre-lapsarian, before the Great War. Yeah. But also the book is full of poverty. It's full of... You know, there are people still alive who remember the riots uh, in, in, in the 1830s over enclosures. Um, it's full of pain. It's, it's amazingly open-minded about gypsies. You get very few writers of this time, leaving aside George Borrow and the slightly romantic... But he writes about the, all the local kind of communities, and he writes amazingly precisely about wildlife. Um, so it's, it's a kind of... It's, a, it's the portrait of a community. It's the portrait of one extraordinary man, quite happy man's life. Um, and it's a sort of, a, it, you get the, the, the tremendous sense. I mean, he went, Hudson went on to, f was one of the founders of um, 
of the Back to Nature movement in the in in the in the twenties and also the RSPB. So he's kind of an important eco ecological figure. But really, what's great about him is just a brilliant, brilliant writer. Uh, and I just this is a little thing he wrote about. Um, uh, about the marigold, which gives you a sense of his kind of, uh, it, he turns a meditation on the marigold into a, uh, into a, a, an assault on city life. Okay, how the townsman, town born and bred, regards this flower, I do not know. He is, in spite of all the time I've spent in his company, a comparative stranger to me, the one living creature on the earth who does not greatly interest me. Some overpopulated planet in our system discovered a way to relieve itself by discharging its superfluous millions on our globe, a pale people with hurrying feet and eager, restless minds who live apart in monstrous, crowded camps like wood ants that do not go out to forage for themselves, six millions of them crowded together in one camp alone. I have lived in these colonies years and years, never losing the sense of captivity, of exile, ever conscious of my burden, taking no interest in the doings of that innumerable multitude, its manifold interests, its ideals and philosophy, its arts and pleasures. What, then, does it matter how they regard this common orange flower with a strong smell? For me, it has an atmosphere, a sense or suggestion of something immeasurably remote and very beautiful, an event, a place, a dream perhaps, which has left no distinct image, but only this feeling, unlike all others, imperishable and not to be described except by the one word, marigold. Mm. Oh, that's... Isn't that good? It's just, <laughs> it's full of that. It's full of, it's, anyway, it's, it's, it's... So that is available, I should say, in the interests of commercial balance, <laughs> that although that is available in a handsome edition sent to John Free by Little Toller, <laughs> yeah. and it was by Adam Thorpe, you, you, listeners, can also um, acquire this book for free uh, from Project Gutenberg, you can. where it can be downloaded. Okay. You, can. Um, yeah. you can. But... Uh, uh, are you? Going, I, are the next six? What have you no, been no, reading? No, no, I'm not. I'm read? not. I'm not going to do that at all. But it's you know, it's that thing. Is they're, they're, they're beautiful, beautiful yeah, notebooks. Yeah, yeah. So they're very good at what they do. But it's that thing of finding. And I think it was probably, it was probably they were spurred into action by the the fact that I talked about the LP Jacks book, Mad Shepherds, a few weeks ago. Mad, I was going to say Mad Shepherds. Yeah. I think you would be fair to say it's a, it's a very different kind of book to the book you've been reading I, this weekend. <laughs> yes. So I have been reading the first novel by the much-praised author George Saunders called Lincoln in the Bardo. And before I say a little bit about the book itself, I want to just tell people how I came to read this book. An early copy was sent to me a few months ago, and I've had it on the pile to read. And I've sort of been looking at it thinking, oh, I haven't got, oh, I haven't got time. Oh, uh, American. So this weekend I saw somebody raving about it, uh, someone I find quite irritating, raving about it. <laughs> and, then, and, then, uh, and then within hours I saw someone else really slagging it off, who also I find quite annoying. So I, I, I thought, okay, I better read this book now. If I don't read this book today, if I don't start reading this book today, by the middle of next week, there'll be enough of a dialogue going yeah, yeah. about it, which I yeah. feel alienated from, that I'll just go, oh, I can't bother with that. I can't yeah, be bothered with that. You know what I mean? I'm not being whimsical. It's important to say it's slightly our um, rubric is that because we've both grown up in this industry and have spent mm. our whole lives being sold to and having to sell and, you know, that... The, the, the point of Backlisted was that we were trying to do something yeah. that wasn't about yeah. that. It was disinterested in the 
original meaning. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so, so I'm sort of trying to, I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll overcome my own, I'll react to my own reactionary nature and try and just pick, I'll pick this up, I'll read the first few pages and I'll, I'll see how I get on with it. And what happened, well, quite accurately, was I started reading it and I read it in a day. Uh, it's a 320-page novel, yeah. albeit fairly some wide spacing in it. And I genuinely, and this is an accurate description, and I hardly ever say this, I couldn't put it down. Yeah. <laughs> I actually couldn't, I couldn't stop reading it. I thought it was so... Uh, and you haven't had that for a while. Ma- no, so magical and so full of life. I'm not going to try and, other than to say what the premise of the book is, which is that it is an account of the death and imagined afterlife of Abraham Lincoln's young son, Willie, told through the voices, again, some factual, some fictional, of people who were there at the time, and the voices of the spirits of people in the graveyard in which Willie is interred. I don't want to talk too much about it, and I don't want to read from it. Mm. And there are two reasons why I don't want to read from it. The first is that I sort of feel this is a book... I, feel, I think this is going to be a really big book. Yeah. And many of you who are listening to this will probably buy this book in a three-for-two, or you might read it when you go on holiday, yeah. or the chances are you're going to encounter this book. And what I want to say to you is me immediately, as quickly as I can, is ignore people like me (laughs) blaring on about it and try and just get to the book and read it. What's so wonderful about it is it's actually very hard for me to compare it to other writers or other books because it's not much like other writers Mm. or other books. Most books are like other books. Reading this, I kind of thought, well, this seems so natural on the page yet so hard to actually find a, a resting place for in the kind of cultural setting. It's, it's funny, it's very moving. To read, to read a novel about an American president mm. right now, right at this yeah. minute, yeah. seemed very, very stirring, actually. Had you read any of his stories, Saunders' stories, I before? Had, no, I had not right. read any Saunders' yeah. stories before, and we'll come on to that yeah. in a minute. The other reason why I didn't want to read anything from Lincoln in the Bardo is there is an audio book coming of Lincoln in the Bardo, which has a cast of 166 different readers, <laughs> including... Uh, the, the main trio are played by Nick Offerman, uh, David Sedaris, and George Saunders himself. And Saunders gave this brilliant quote when he said to Saunders, said, why didn't you read the whole thing? And he said, well, I can, I can only do three voices. I can do like a working class guy, kind of a woman, and a British guy. <laughs> so, so, they've got like, so they've got those main trio, and then they've got Miranda July, they've got Carrie Brownstein, Lena Dunham, Ben Stiller. They've got Jeff Tweedy from Wilco comes in and does one of the voices. They've got Saunders' parents and his wife you, you, you and his had, daughter. You had me at Sidaris. I mean, yeah. I mean <laughs> so I'm going to read this again on, on audio Great. because yeah. the audio seems... But, but, okay, so I've said all those things. Uh, on the way here today... I On the train. On the train here today, I was reading... I liked this book so much that I immediately went out and bought two more <laughs> by George Saunders. I was reading his book, 10th of December, his book of stories that won the folio. And I'm just going to read you this two-paragraph story called Sticks. Mm-hmm. It's a whole story. Okay? If you like this, you will love this novel. Yeah. If you don't like this, try harder. <laughs> <laughs> Alienating everyone Take listening. It away. It's called Sticks. Every year, Thanksgiving night, 
We flocked out behind Dad as he dragged the Santa suit to the road and draped it over a kind of crucifix he'd built out of metal pole in the yard. Super Bowl week, the pole was dressed in a jersey and Rod's helmet, and Rod had to clear it with Dad if he wanted to take the helmet off. <laughs> On 4th of July, the pole was Uncle Sam. On Veterans Day, a soldier. On Halloween, a ghost. The pole was Dad's one concession to glee. <laughs> we were allowed a single Crayola from the box at a time. One Christmas Eve, he shrieked at Kimmy for wasting an apple slice. He hovered over us as we poured ketchup, saying, good enough, good enough, good enough. Birthday parties consisted of cupcakes, no ice cream. The first time I brought a date over, she said, what's with your dad and that pole? <laughs> and I sat there blinking. <laughs> we left home, married, had children of our own, found the seeds of meanness blooming also within us. Dad began dressing the pole with more complexity and less discernible logic. He draped some kind of fur over it on Groundhog Day <laughs> and lugged out a floodlight to ensure a shadow. When an earthquake struck Chile, he laid the pole on its side and spray-painted a rift in the earth. Mom died and he dressed the pole as death and hung from the crossbar photos of Mom as a baby. We'd stop by and find odd talismans from his youth arranged around the base. Army medals, theatre tickets, old sweatshirts, tubes of mum's makeup. One autumn, he painted the pole bright yellow. He covered it with cotton swabs that winter for warmth <laughs> and provided offspring by hammering in six crossed sticks around the yard. He ran lengths of string between the pole and the sticks and take to the string letters of apology, admissions of error, pleas for understanding, all written in a frantic hand on index cards. He painted a sign saying love and hung it from the pole and another that said forgive. And then he died in the hall with the radio on and we sold the house to a young couple who yanked out the pole and left it by the road on garbage day. Brilliant. That right, is actually right. what, that's what fiction's for, you know, that's in, in that story, in that two-paragraph story, yep. which is moving and clever and funny, in my opinion, mm. and all those other things, it's one thing to do that in a short story, quite another thing, as we know, to do it in a novel, but that tone, mm. that mixture of things is yeah. what, it's in, in my opinion, you find in Lincoln in the Bardo, in yeah, a kind right. of unique combination. Great. And also, can I just, my final word on uh, LinkedIn and Bardo, the early reviews have started coming in, they're very good. I would like to draw your attention to the review uh, on the AV Club website, I really like the AV yeah. Club, and the headline of their review, yeah. this is not what you would find in the TLS, but is accurate, yeah. is simply, George Saunders' new novel will blow your fucking mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's pretty good. So, that's my last word on that. We'll be back in just a sec. And so, turning yeah. from LinkedIn and Bardo, George Saunders, some shepherds, to The Snowball by Bridget Brophy. So we all read this this week, right? Yeah, and I, um, it's funny you should say that thing about finding it hard to contextualise Lincoln on the Bardo. I found it very difficult to think of anything that The Snowball was like. I was really trying to think, where has anybody taken a, one art form and turned it into another in quite the way that this book... It builds up some kind of resonant relationship with, with 
Don Giovanni, the opera. I agree with you, John. This so, is yeah, I mean, it's really, inter- really interesting to try and... It's, it's very original and very unlike anything else I've been reading for a while. And it, consequently, it took me a while to, to sort of settle into its rhythms. But once you do... It's a small, it is a little small, perfect book. I agree. I, I found it rather, I don't know, I was enjoying it, but I was thinking, okay, well, this, seem, this seems to be holding me at arm's length. I wonder mm. why. Yes. Is it yeah. deliberately holding me at arm's length, or am I holding it at arm's length, <laughs> yeah. in fact? Yeah. And actually, I, I realise that the, the, there's a certain... Artifice. Artifice yes. and cold, deliberate yeah. coldness yeah. Yeah, absolutely. to it, right, yeah. I would yeah. say. Yeah that actually I finished reading I thought, wow, that was really good. Mm. That was really good. And I've thought about it mm. um, uh, all week. It's really yeah. it's really, really, really does get, gets in you. Um, Jonathan, when did you... It was your idea that we... Um, <laughs> it's your idea. It's still yeah. your idea. <laughs> <laughs> when did you uh, discover... We, we need to, I feel in this discussion we need to yeah. put place it in the context of Brophy's life and yeah. career, which is why we'll yeah. keep coming back to that. Yeah. When did you first encounter this book and or Bridget Brophy? Well, the first time I encountered Bridget Brophy was probably about 20 years ago, and I picked that book that you have there, Hackenfeller's Elp, Ape in that Virago mm-hmm. Modern Classics edition, off a shelf of the flat of my uncle and aunt that I was staying with for a weekend, and I you know, read about a quarter of it or something and thought, you know, That's, this is pretty good. And then I didn't think of her again until... I think about five years ago, I saw a different edition of that book in a second-hand shop and liked the cover design, remembered that I'd enjoyed it, picked it off and read it and then started getting hold of the other ones. I mean, there's only one of her novels in print, so it is, it is second-hand shops and eBay yeah. uh, to get hold of it, to get hold of them. Um, and, you know, I read, I think I read three or four of her other novels over about a year, but I read them more than once. Not all of them, but the mm. the ones that I like more than once, and yeah. I think you do need. Um, it helps to come back to them again. I mean, it certainly helps to have some context of her yeah. of her life. I mean, I started to get interested in her and look looked into the the background, and it is fascinating who who she was and all the reasons why she might not be quite so high up in our uh, uh, or quite so obvious on our radar compared to other people who are writing at the same time. So she, her first novel, Hackenfellow's Ape, beat. Iris Murdoch's first novel, Under the Net, to the Cheltenham, what was the first novel prize yeah. at the Cheltenham Literary Festival. Did it? So I knew that it was I didn't know. Yeah. I, I read uh, Hackenfellas Ape is, is short, it's like 120 pages. Mm. I read that this week. That's, that's terri- I have to say, that's t- terrific. Mm. I don't think it's better than The Snowball, no. but it's more um, uh, approachable, I yeah. think. Yeah, Wouldn't you say? Yeah. It's sort of, yeah. it's, it's funny, it's more of a romp, I think, than yeah. The Snowball. I mean, I know nothing about opera. I like going to the opera occasionally, sure. and I just feel that a, a book like this on a second or third reading I mean it's so simple it, it's, it's set at a, a a costume ball at this rich couple's yeah, house an 18th century costume ball so, so everyone's yeah. wearing the women are wearing there's a brilliant line about the women having huge wigs and it's the first time it's difficult to see the men because the men are all in flat shoes and the women have all got the high wigs and it starts at about 10 to 12 when they're getting ready for old Lang Syne yeah. and the costume ball is going to end at eight. And it's basically the story... I mean, there's, the blurb will say... We'll read it in a sec. It's yeah. just, as far as I'm concerned, it's the story of a seduction. There's a main, the main character, Anna, who's come um, as, uh, as Donna Anna from Don Giovanni. And, by the way, how much chutzpah have you got to have 
quote yourself as your Could we just tell you for people that what? That, could you just read the epigraph of the book? So the epigraph to The Snowball by Bridget Brophy is this. That most fascinating subject for gossip, whether when the opera opens Don Giovanni has seduced or has just failed to seduce Donna Anna, will no doubt go on being debated for another two centuries. Bridget Brophy, Mozart, the dramatist, <laughs> footnote. I mean, I mean how your, your epigraph is a footnote yeah. from one of your other books. <laughs> and it is absolutely. I mean, that in, 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 in Embryo is the book. It, yeah. is, it is about, you know, what happened. It, it's, a, it's a sort of a, it's a fictional explore, exploration of another work of art, yeah. which is the, the opera. Yes, yeah. and, yes, and yes. While that might well, make well, it sound incredibly dry mm. and academic it's yeah. it's absolutely none of those things it's it's it's, it's a, a very erotic novel yeah, yeah it's a novel about three i was going to say it's a novel about three things <laughs> yeah, know, right yeah. sex death and mozart yeah but in I which one of the some of other british yeah, brophy's yeah. novels yeah. Right? <laughs> which i think were her interests yeah. and also anna the main character yeah. in the book says at one point yeah. where she said i'm interested in mozart and sex and she said well i'm interested in mozart sex and death yeah i mean it, it, it's very erotic as long as you find intelligence a turn on yeah, yeah. Well, I got yeah. a couple. There's a couple. We'll, we'll get into that more in, in a minute. But it's, it's also you said, Jonathan, it's a book about a seduction. It's actually a book about three seductions, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. It's, and and three sexual relationships contrasted with one another yeah. at <laughs> different points in that sexual relationship. Exactly, yeah. There's a there's a, a, a Archety- three kind of archetypal: the te- yeah. teenage love, yeah, middle aged love, tom tom and tom tom, indeed, yeah. and <laughs> sort of grand kind of uh, amar you know that that sort of uh, what's it called coup de theatre where they, yeah. they come together and no, coup de foudre coup de foudre yeah. that's the one yeah coup de foudre but could be a coup de theatre but they're so it's, it is distanced and so it is hugely uh, you know there's a lot of passion there but they also hold each other very coldly at a distance it proceeds yes. very slowly that seduction it's yes and it appears to be off the cards for, for quite yeah. a considerable chunk yeah. of the book yeah. I mean it's also there's the, the teenage the teenage bit which is, I think, really well done because through the brilliant device of having a precocious 15-year-old girl writing her diary, yeah. Yeah. absenting herself from the adults' yeah. party and writing her diary, the diary which she says she wants to, to record everything yeah. just as it happens, yeah. which, you know, as they say, with hilarious consequences <laughs> later in the book. I, I will be reading from those hilarious consequences <laughs> in, in a you're, short while. You're going for the... Shall I read the blurb now? Yes. And then maybe, if I read the blurb, and then maybe, Jonathan, you could read a, a yes. little yeah. bit. Yeah. That would be great. So this is from this blurb is from a paperback edition published Cardinal by edition. Cardinal, who were part of Sphere, yeah. the Picador bit of Sphere. Yeah. In in uh, this was published in 1990. Uh, this is the uh, here is the blurb. Wealthy, seal-like, and much married Anne is giving a glittering New Year's Eve costume ball. The theme is the 18th century, in keeping with her elegant house and she is swathed in gold lame, a solid gold orb, to represent the queen whose name she shares. Her best friend, Anna, and there's a bit of chutzpah calling your two of your main characters, Anne and Anna, who prefers perfection to life and is obsessed by Mozart's sex and death, is dressed as Donna Anna from the opera Don Giovanni. Within the shimmering, faded opulence of the great rooms, an elaborate sequence of events gracefully unfolds. Anna spies a masked man in black, Don Giovanni, the heartless and impious seducer who did, or did he, seduce Donna Anna. Ruth, 
a young Jewish girl dressed as Cherubino, sees all and frequently escapes to write it in her frenzied diary, yet she still looks an unlikely candidate for divesting a young Casanova of his virginity. Upstairs, an act of, quotes, perfect bad taste, unquote, <laughs> is foiled by an act of huge and exotic normality yeah. in the warmth of a white boudoir, yet there is a strain as constant as the falling snow outside of unease beneath the glitter. What a great blurb. Yeah. I think that's a really yeah, that's good a blurb. Brilliant. Well done, the Cardinal Marketing Department. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then there's a quote from Iris Murdoch here. I'll just read this quote. It says, uh, Very beautiful, brief and taken altogether or line by line, exquisitely decorated. What a pleasure it is to come upon a novel which so palpably enjoys itself. Not only the reader, but the characters savour the deliciousness of the world that surrounds them. Superb, sheer artistic insolence. And that review is in no way compromised <laughs> by the knowledge that Iris Murdoch was in that at the time she wrote I, it in a relationship with Bridget Brophy. I wonder but anyway. where, suddenly saying that, I wonder where that comes. It, there, it suddenly made me think of The Black Prince, which is yeah, Murdoch's okay. yeah. own kind of uh, yeah, fictional yeah. uh, kind of attempt to re, rewrite Hamlet. Yeah, I mean, because... I think less successfully than Richard Brophy does I mean, with Don Giovanni. Brophy got off to a quicker start than Murdoch, but by this stage, Murdoch was well ahead of her um, yes. in terms of success and, and acclaim. And I, I, I have to... Matt was uh, saying to me earlier, you know, do you think you have to know the... Do you think you have to know the opera to enjoy the book? Uh, I, I have to say, this is the second novel I've read in the last year, based on Don Giovanni. Really? What was the other one? The other one is um, uh, After the Death of Don Juan by Sylvia Townsend oh, Warner, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is a book about sex, death and the Spanish Civil War <laughs> rather than the sex, death of Mozart. But, <laughs> and, and, but I, know nothing, I know nothing about Don Giovanni, and I would say, uh, in my own experience, Matt, is no, you don't... I think you don't have to know, and by the end of either of those books, you'll lo know a lot more about Don Giovanni than you did at the beginning. Yeah. So, yeah. what do you think? Um... No, I don't think so. I think I got more out of it. I mean, she drove me to listen to Mozart, Bridget Brophy did. Right. And, you know, that you know, you have to... You can't listen to opera while you're doing the washing up. I mean, you can once you know it. You have to invest in listening to opera. You have to invest money if you want to go and see it. Mm. But you have to invest time, and you have to have the libretto, and you have to have the translation of the libretto. There's no point just saying, oh, I'm just going to have it on in the background. No. And I think that applies to Bridget Brophy's books as well. The yeah. more close attention you pay to it, the more you reward you'll get. I mean, I don't think it's essential to know the opera, but if you do know it, it's the dark Mozart operates that it's the kind of the, the the one that isn't Mozartian if what Mozartian means is lovely yeah. tunes and, and kind of happy endings it's powerful and it's Don Giovanni gets you know taken off to hell it's pretty yeah. powerful and the yeah. music's darker much more darkened so to go back to that question, I agree with you. I mean the thing is what you're talking about there John is very interesting it's of course true it's not how can I put this? One doesn't have books on in the background. I suppose yeah, one could if yeah. one has audio books. But one of the things with Brophy, and I think several of the, actually, in fact, the book we discussed on the last episode, The Horse's Mouth yeah, by Joyce yeah. Carey, which I know, Jonathan, you, you're yeah, a big I fan of. Yeah, I love that book. book yeah. uh, you can't sort of. You, you can't. You won't be carried along by it. You was need it, to lean into it, it and, and engage with it. And was I kind it of Max that said, way. slip down like a lozenge? Was that his yeah, line? You know, yeah, you, yeah. you try and treat this book like 
that you'll choke. No, you've got to you've got to pay attention because a lot of it is um, a lot of it is very very sharply observed yeah. dialogue between two highly intelligent yeah. people who who do not reveal their identities to one yeah. another. It's a sort of just again that formal thing, brilliantly done. You you don't you don't learn anything much. Mm. about the characters' yeah. actual lives, but yeah. you learn what they think about the things that matter most yeah. to them, which is, you know, sex and, there's and a, death. You know, there's and a two-page description <laughs> of, a, of a woman <laughs> making her face up. Yeah, Extra there's a, isn't there's that a two-page description of a woman looking at a, a, a little wooden statue of Cupid. Yeah. And oh, that's it, incredible. A yeah. two-page description yeah, yeah. And, and sort of analysing it and picking it apart. And, you know, that's, you know it, you've got to pay close attention to those bits. You must read some now. Okay, no, yes, I'd love please, to. Please, please, yeah. um, I'm going to have a go at some of the dialogue. I'm not an actor. Yeah. So uh, right. this is Don Giovanni and Anna are up in the minstrels gallery <laughs> um, while there's the big uh, stuff going on down in, in the main room and they're hidden behind a curtain and they're whispering. And there are some other bits from the younger couple in Disperse which I'm not going to bother with. Actually, said Don Giovanni, as though it took him an effort to speak, I like Siamese cats rather better than the ordinary kind. I like you, Anna said, without any emphasis or expression at all. <laughs> Don Giovanni made no reply to what she had said, but after a little she discerned that he was peering through the dimness towards her, towards the place at the rise of her breasts, where a little more to the left and to the right she had stuck a beauty spot. I like your beauty spot, he said. I've liked it all night. I like you, she repeated, in the same way as before. Yet the curious thing is, he said, that although I like it, I want to take it off. <laughs> Anna said, that's one of the things I prefer to do for myself. <laughs> All right, then do. She looked down at her bosom, which in the dimness was a greenish white, the colour of flesh in an old painting on panel. She put her thumbnail under the edge of the beauty spot. Slowly, she peeled it off, held out her hand, and let the beauty spot tumble invisibly to the floor. You realise, he said, that you've made me terrified to touch you. Yes, I've been enjoying your terror for some minutes. Are you cruel, he asked. She seemed to be breathless for a moment. My cruelty is very, very delicate, she eventually replied, slowly. That's as though you were going to behead me and promised that no single stroke would be fatal. You just do it with hundreds of little ones. <laughs> His voice sounded to her extraordinarily loud and deep, but it could not have penetrated the muffling of the curtain because no one from the ballroom called shush. I'd rather thought it was you who were going to execute me, she said, with a quiver, possibly a laugh in the sentence. You wear the executioner's mask. Perhaps both, each, each. She did and said nothing. His head bent forward towards her, as though for the executioner's stroke, and he began very passionately to kiss the place where the beauty spot had been. Mm, it's very good. It is great. It is great. I mean, it, it's, it's very smart people seducing yeah. one another, yeah. um, which is most of the book. And then less smart people, yeah. or, or younger people with different... In a uh, car. In a car. Well, I'm just, yeah. I just want to read this little bit from that of the younger people in the car. 
and um, I don't think there are any spoilers involved in this. And this is worth reading because it's it's the counterpoint to that very smart, yeah. very yeah. sexy dialogue yeah. that you that, that you just read, Jonathan. This is a this is a section where I think Ruth, yes, Ruth dressed as Cherubino, and Edward dressed as Casanova, have um, they've had sex in the car, haven't they? Yeah, I believe I'm yeah. right in saying. Yeah. And uh, they've now subsequently they've had a row, and she has um, kneed him in the groin. <laughs> so that's what's just happened. Sitting on the running board, Edward became quite numb with cold and knew that, having exaggerated his injury to Ruth, yeah. he was now exaggerating it to himself. <laughs> As a matter of fact, he had been bearing down so hard on her hands that her legs had not had much freedom of manoeuvre, and she had not got in a very forceful blow. Nevertheless, he felt justified in his exaggeration because she might have injured him badly. <laughs> she was ignorant enough, by which he meant that she needed a lesson. He got up and trudged round in the snow, trying to remember to stamp his feet to warm them up. He didn't stir far from the Blumenbaum's car. It was in his mind that if a policeman should come on him loitering beside the cars of people who did not know him and would not speak up from him, he might be arrested. The back of the Blumenbaum's car rose, and to some height, not quite vertically, but at the staidest of inclines, like the back of a spinster on a bicycle. Edward's own taste preferred cars that crouched low as though over dropped handlebars. That was what he would have bought if he had had the same amount of money to spend on a car as Rudy Blumenbaum had spent on this. But he did not trust his own taste and thought that if he had had the money to spend, he would merely have betrayed the shallowness of his taste. Yeah. He believed in good and bad taste as absolutes, though not in his own ability to tell them apart. <laughs> <laughs> what Rudy had got for his money was not merely luxury, but respectable luxury. The, respectable, the respectability that went with old-fashioned things, with the look of ancien regime. Edward hated and despised Rudy Blumenbaum's car, but would not for the world have forfeited his connection with it. He half hoped a policeman would challenge him. It was a connection to an object Edward could not have acquired because his taste would not have been elastic enough to let him reach for it. He felt towards the Blumenbaum's car as a young man might to an elderly spinster distant connection who was tiresome, old-fashioned and tedious in her insistence on discipline. Her hints that young people should be taught to sit up straight by having boards strapped to their backs <laughs> and yet invaluable because she had a title. <laughs> on the staidly sloping back of the car, snow had uncertainly gathered. It might all slide off in a sheet at any moment. It had compiled from the bottom upwards, and at the edges and top, the staid dark green paint was still visible. Taking great care not to dislodge the whole sheet, Edward fing Edward's finger wrote in the snow, Jew boy. And then he went, quite happily, back to the ball. That's now, good. first of all, there is some... I would say in that extract there's some fantastic comic writing. Yeah. There's some very good intellectual metaphorical yeah. writing. There's also... Psych what I love about Brophy and the books that I've read by Brophy, and this applies to everything that I've read by her, that they have, she had teeth. Yeah. When yeah, she absolutely. wanted to bite, yeah. she actually bites there yeah. really quite hard. I think that's a really terrific piece of writing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 there's very little bad writing at all. If any, I mean, all the sentences I think in this book are—you can feel, you know—it's that sort of 
worked over quality that yeah. she does there's no, nothing slack nothing loose yeah. and the things that you think are going to be almost the things that are most difficult to do i just wanted to read a, a, just a very short thing and it does give away the fact that anna and don giovanni have had sex but yeah. if you're going to do sex in a book this is this is a, i think about as good as it gets and i i think this these passages were were in the 60s were pretty controversial but yeah. this is post-coital in case you hadn't gathered anna lay listening bodily to her after sensations an intense, yeah. deep-buried throbbing shook the lower part of her body. A sobbing might have shaken the upper. Indeed, these throbs seemed to her an exact counterpart and antonym to sobs. They made an outburst, a shower of pleasure, the opposite of a storm of weeping. In a storm of weeping, there would have been, as in all storms, a wry warmth and happiness, if only for the relief and release and equally in this most intense, least voluntary, and therefore most death-emaging of pleasures, there was, and also for the release, a wry sadness. Kind of all, all the themes of the book in one short mm, paragraph. It. Mm. So and it, hard, hard to do that well. So that's 1964. Yeah. 1962, you have Flesh, which has also got a lot of sex in it. 1963, in the middle of those two, you've got the finishing touch, which is this lesbian, colettish oh fantasia with the, the headmistress based on oh, Anthony yeah. Blunt. I read that this week. That's <laughs> one of the most peculiar books I've ever read. That's not makes, unreasonable, is it? Yeah, it's makes, very makes Jean Brodie look pretty sort of tame. It's funny, though. Yeah. It's, funny, though. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. funny. She, just, that, that she can't finish any of her sentences. She's just, just bring me the... And the <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. And what I love about... The thing that I love about Flesh, I've got... There's a bit of sex in Flesh that I love as well. And she writes about sex from a man's point of view. I mean, heterosexual sex from a man's point of view brilliantly. And it came out in 1962. 1962, if you look at it closely, is the year in which On Chesil Beach is set. Oh. So I can't remember their names, but that <laughs> yeah, poor yeah. couple, that poor couple, yes, yes. if only they'd read Brophy, it all would have been okay, because Flesh is about uh, an experienced woman who, so uh, who marries a man who is a virgin, and, and she brings him out of himself. So it's a reverse Pygmalion. Mm. And if only poor old whatever her name, whatever yes, his name, yes. awful oh, seaside don't. night. Yeah. Uh, if, you know, it just proved, you know, yes, it was controversial, but it shows that people were writing, you know, intelligently about sex in the early 60s, not in a sort of Kingsley Amis way, but in a, uh, in a... Yeah, she's definitely, she seems to me, she's definitely at this sort of Burgess Murdoch end of yeah. the highly intellectual yeah. game playing. Yeah. But as you say, what I like is that there is, there is genuine... There is genuine teeth when she goes for it. But, but. She was also, um, as we were saying, I want to do the biography in a moment. Yeah, but yeah. she was. She. She. I, I, there's. I wanted to play a clip of Brophy because yeah. she was quite media savvy. She yeah. was on TV a lot in the 1960s. There is a clip up on YouTube which um, we haven't um, uh, got an excerpt from. I will tell you why in a minute. But there's a clip of Brophy on a panel discussion about. Um, Marriage with the none more 1960s lineup of Bridget Brophy, Diana Rigg, Kathy McGowan, Adrienne Puster, and Georgia Brown. Excellent. The most amazing clip, right? And unfortunately, they are being interviewed yeah. by a now disgraced um, uh, pop star and DJ and pundit who has who has put the thing on his own. Um, YouTube channel, yeah. so it's up to you, uh, listeners. listeners. <laughs> if you if you wish to go and listen to it, you can. Um, 
but also and, and, and Brophy brilliantly as, it's, as one of the YouTube comments says Bridget for the win yeah. she, first of all she's very funny and so yeah. well, she smokes through the whole thing yeah, right. you know but she's very much in that like we saw I mentioned she, B.S. Johnson she's very much but she's, in that she's kind a, of she was a powerful public I mean, intellectual she was a, she was a sort know. of socialist public intellectual yeah. she was uh, she kind of she made the intellectual case for animal rights yeah. uh, very strongly uh, she's vegetarian yeah um, I will uh, let me just do the bio because and then then we must talk about again listeners will stuff. understand why <laughs> her book 50 works of English literature we could do without uh, but okay so she was born in London in 1929 the daughter of the novelist John Brophy uh, educated at St Paul's Girls School and St Hugh's College Oxford from where she was sent down I believe mm -hmm. I'm yeah. not saying that right yeah, yeah. Uh, she, in 1954, she married Michael Levy, who was director of the National Gallery from 1973 to 1986. He was knighted in 1981. Had a daughter, uh, Kate. Hello, Kate. And three, <laughs> and three grandchildren. Uh, in 1984, she developed multiple sclerosis, uh, progressive and disabling uh, affliction, and she died in 1995. Now, most of her novels were written in the 1960s. Mm. They were, well, we've mentioned most of them, uh, the only ones which weren't were The Adventures of God in His Search for the Black Girl in 1973. Stories, I think. And Palace yeah. Without Chairs in 1978. I haven't read that, yeah. yeah. It's a weird um, sort of allegory. And also In Transit, which um, mm. is in print, I think, from Dolkey Archive, and that's a very strange sort of postmodern um, thing. I don't like it very much. Mm. It would fit into a, a hundred different... Um, literature courses and the one that's in print is the king yeah. of a rainy oh, country yeah 1956 yeah. which yeah. i didn't have time to read but i'm still i'm going no. to read yeah. i see yeah. lots of people from praising Cedar that Press, another um, um yeah i mean it's worth saying i'm definitely going to read more brophy i mean she's it's it's too, she's too good a writer not, yeah. not she, to want to kind of she also wrote uh, as we've been discussing incredible range of non-fiction yeah. so she wrote books about Mozart yeah. Aubrey Beardsley yeah. that peculiar book about Furbank, Furbank as yeah. you said yeah. a book about the rights of animals a guide to public lending rights yeah. Um, she was she, again. She was she was instrumental in in, well, in, in, in establishing public. I, I just want to to read a bit. Her her agent uh, was the late Giles Gordon, who is the agent who founded Curtis Brown. I think I'm right in saying. Uh, I uh, don't know, but he's I think I, he I might think, be right. And um, he, uh, so I, he wrote her he wrote obituary the funniest for the book ever about the agent life called "Aren't We Due a Royalty Statement?" Which, if you've <laughs> never read it, is every, read. anybody who's ever worked in publishing should read that book. It's, <laughs> it's well, this is him. This is him writing action, about her. actionably funny. He said. Uh, Bridget Brophy's achievement as patron saint of public lending rights, PLR, which is the thing that you know, if somebody borrows. Uh, your book from a library, you get paid for it. Yeah. That's thanks to Bridget Brophy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's all the more remarkable in that writers rarely have the energy or commitment to do anything but write and grumble about how inadequately they have been paid and published. <laughs> <laughs> she motivated and mobilised hundreds of them whilst for a decade withholding her labour as a book author. Yeah. Mm. She had in certain quarters, no doubt including Whitehall, the reputation of being quote unquote difficult. No one who knew this deeply shy, courteous woman well, she raised the level of the thank you letter to a minor art form, ever found her difficult. And no author was more sensitive, considerate and professional in her dealings with her literary agent or with her publishers. 
but woe betide the editor who tried to rewrite her fastidious, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. logical, exact prose, change a colon to a semicolon yeah. or vice versa, yeah. or try to spell show, yes. S-H-O-W, yeah. other than show, S-H-E-W, yeah. slavish shavian that Brophy was. Atheist, vegetarian, socialist, novelist and short story writer, humanist, biographer, playwright... Freudian promoter of animals' rights, children's author, tennis fanatic, not least least Navratilova, Mm -hmm. and on television football fancier, most loyal of friends, reverer of Jane Austen, lover of Italy, Mozart adorer, uh, aficionado of the English National Opera but not of the Royal Opera House, (laughs) disliker of Shakespeare in performance, smoker of cigarettes in a chic holder, Painter of her fingernails purple, mother, grandmother, wife, feminist, lover of men and women, Bridget Brophy was above all an intellectual, which British, although she was Irish, authors aren't supposed to be. We mistrust logical, rational thought in our writers, finding it easier to live with instinct, intuition. Brophy was ever the Aristotelian logician. And actually, that, I that thought brilliant? that's a brilliant, it's absolutely written, brilliant. perfect and, description. And, and it, of... it completely captures... And it, uh, you know, slightly makes you wonder why she hasn't lasted yeah. better. I mean, it's always... We were talk, speculating, as we often do, is would she have lasted better had she been a man? Mm. Don't know. Yeah. It's, it's a, it, I don't know. I don't know what you think. There's a lot of public intellectuals who uh, are men in the, from the 60s who, who haven't really... But it perhaps... Uh, perhaps her fiction seemed like a byproduct of her profile yeah and yeah. once the profile had disappeared somewhat yeah. the the fiction went the same way yeah. i mean it's it is unfashionable fiction it's, it's true it's so it's true. complex but it's very slight at the same time yeah. i mean they're, they're short it's just set at a party you know it's just about a seduction I mean, and a couple of seductions if, there's not much happens if you were going to dislike it okay? <laughs> if you were going to dislike it let me put this the case as it were for the pr- prosecution would be this exchange between anna and don giovanni had you ever thought about the milkman she asked sleepily did you know about the place he occupies in our civilization he's a super parent figure i can see don giovanni said that he's a sort of daily santa claus He dates in one's memory, Anna said, from before that awful moment of divorce when one realises one has to have two parents, one of each sex. That is, he's a man, yet one gets milk from him. (laughs) That's so absurd, Don Giovanni said. I think it must be true, or else I'm very tired. Looking into the ballroom, Anna distinguished among the promenaders the man who looked like a boiled egg. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yes, th- she was a devoted Freudian, yeah. and you know that—that's why the book *The Black Ship to Hell* is oh, incredible. She's arguing the minutiae of something that we've all absorbed. The you know the, the idiot's guide to. And, and to be honest, she knows that that's funny. Yes, She's writing yeah, that's yeah, fun. Yeah. That's funny dialogue yeah. between two people who yeah. just had a shag. Yeah. Also, they were saying earlier this that there was a uh, this was made into the Wednesday play on the BBC <laughs> in 1966. <laughs> I also found this brilliant. Uh, I knew that I liked Bridget Brophy on some instinctive level as a person, and then I worked out why. Because also in that obituary, Charles Gordon <laughs> used the following phrase: "An urban soul." Bridget Brophy was not enamoured of the country. <laughs> <laughs> 
last thing we must talk about, and Jonathan, I know very kindly thought of Brophy partly for this reason, because he knew that I, as the author of a book about 50 books, would appreciate the bibliomemoir. Brophy had co authored. Uh, a, similarly, a book along with her husband and a man called Charles Osborne called 50 Who, Works uh, of English. A musicologist and uh, yeah. long at the yeah. observer. 50 yeah. Works of English, brackets, and American literature we could do without. Now, this book, uh, <laughs> this book is <laughs> slightly remarkable in that it goes through, uh, it does exactly what it says on the cover. It, it goes through 50 great books and um, it spares no, mm. pulls no punches about yeah. saying what's wrong with them. And before I, I will read a couple of entries from it, maybe Jonathan, you've got one yeah. as well. That that she, I assume Brophy wrote this, and I took this as uh, fifty years earlier a criticism of my own work, <laughs> um, and 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 maybe of of of, of many peoples. Um, she says we have been pains uh, to indicate which the blooms are for, whose sake we want to clear the weeds. Indeed, if you will go so far as to actually read our text, you will find that quite a lot of it consists of literary appreciation. In any case, the popular distinction between constructive and destructive criticism is a sentimentality. The mind too weak to perceive in what respects the bad fails is not strong enough to appreciate in what the good succeeds. To be without discrimination is to be unable to praise. The critic who lets you know that he always looks for something to like in works he discusses is not telling you anything about the works or about art. He is merely saying, see what a nice person I am. (laughs) So so we take that on the chin and then we turn to, much to my amusement, um, so there's a bit in the Year of Reading Dangerously where I read uh, Of Human Bondage by of Somerset Maugham, <laughs> and uh, I didn't much enjoy it, and then I, 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 I read Cakes and Ale by yeah. Somerset Maugham, and I really didn't enjoy that. And um, I tried to express my dislike in, a, in fairly moderate and reasonable terms. <laughs> Notwithstanding that fact... Some readers of the book have responded, as indeed Nigel B, if you are listening to this, did by being um, uh, uh, slightly disgruntled that I have been mean about Somerset Maugham. And I would say, well, I haven't been, I wasn't that mean about Somerset Maugham. There might be another book I'd read that I like more. So then I turned to 50 works of English literature we could do without to find The Moon and Sixpence by Somerset Maugham. I'm just going to read. What she says about Somerset Maugham, Brophy says, Even those critics who describe the later novels of Maugham as cynical pot-boiling are likely to be reverent about such early works as Liza of Lambeth, Of Human Bondage and The Moon and Sixpence. It must be admitted that there are worse popular novelists than Maugham. (laughs) He himself once proclaimed that he considered his chief function as a novelist was to entertain. The remark has a certain air of defiance. But in a sense, the first, if not necessarily the prime function of a novelist, of any artist, is to entertain. If the poem, painting, play or novel does not immediately engage one's surface interest, then it has failed. Whatever else it may be or may not be, art is also entertainment. Mm. Bad art fails to entertain. Good art does something in addition. Maugham's limitation as an artist is that he is equipped to do no more than entertain, and that, in consequence, he achieves no more than his immediate aim. 
he is working always at the frontiers of his meagre imagination, <laughs> and the talents that he undoubtedly possesses are not in themselves to sufficient to sustain one's interest in his narrative. The best that can be said of the moon in Sixpence, and for that matter of Morm's entire oeuvre, is that it is admirable middle-brow stuff, ideally geared to the demands of the stockbroker who likes to parade his literacy but has no taste for literature. <laughs> Whack! Ouch! I mean, the th- that, here's the thing. I, I believe this book, when it was published, as, as no doubt yeah. they wished, yeah. provoked quite a few yeah, people. And it was published in the it's, States. It's journalism, really. But, yeah, yeah. Here's the, but here's the Hence thing about it. printness, I yeah. should just say. Well, and also, there's a fair number of the books that are treated that aren't even really worth dismissing because nobody reads them anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's so good about it and, uh, and is worth saying, you know, I'm, I... I I enjoy re- reading this book and reading bits from those books, not simply, not merely because I like being rude about great works of literature, but because they're written with, because they care. Yeah, no, you know, true. they care enough There's, about. It, it yeah. reminds me. It reminds me of the famously kind of um, uh, splenetic uh, introduction to the uh, Guide to World Literature by Martin Seymour Smith where he takes about four pages to demolish the critical credentials of the current crop of time-out reviewers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an entirely ridiculous place to settle scores, but it's a fabulous... He, I think he says that it's like a football team that goes out onto a field without anybody having informed them of the rules of the game. <laughs> but it's the same thing. I mean, it's, I mean, it's like A.A. Gill at his best. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, you know, I guess the interesting thing is why Tess of the D'Urbervilles is still... Is still taught at schools, and is still read. I mean, I, I whereas, like you. whereas many of Brophy's novels are not, are not I in print. Yeah. Oh. I say nothing. I mean, I think I think this. I think this. The, the point about this book that we're discussing, the Snowball, is that it it really ought to be read. Yeah. It's crazy that it isn't. As, yeah. It isn't in a, yeah. a, one of the classics. It's a twentieth century classic, I yeah. think. Yes, I, I agree, and I I, f- I think that. Yeah. I, I, the, Based on our discussion, Jonathan, and, and the, the, other, the other books, it seems to me there's probably a core of novels in the 60s novels which mm. should be treated much more seriously yeah. as a body of yeah. work. Yeah. Again, and, like Johnson, you know, that idea of six and, or seven And also d- dealing with sex in a way that it hadn't been, been dealt with. Yeah. Do, do we, I think we have a tenuous link, don't we? Yeah, oh, well. Um, this and is our guest is providing the Yeah, amazing. Yeah. OK. Um, I enjoy listening to the podcast, and I want Thank you, you guys can guess you can of come back. the guests <laughs> that have graced this kitchen table at Unbound, which have I been in a pop band with? Well, we tried Linda Grant earlier. Yeah, we? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we're guessing it wasn't Linda. I'm one guess each. Um, John, you go first. Well, it's tr- I mean, the obvious the obvious one would be to say Andrew Mayle. No, right. It must be something more unusual, is what I'm thinking. Uh, what instrument did you play? He's, bass he's a bass you played guitar. bass guitar. I reckon that you were in a band with the musician and comedy writer Jason Hazley. Yeah, and I was at school with him and Joel. Were you in the band with him or with both of them? Or were you all in a band together? We were all in a band together. Were you? Well, Jay, after a while, Jason wasn't in it anymore. He was by far and away the best musician. But yeah, Joel, well. Joel and I carried on in a band for a couple of years, yeah. Did you? Brilliant. But Good we look. rehearsed together. And what, 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 what was your sound? 
can I say indie? And that's yeah. all that do. More important. Yeah, what were you called? What were you called? Oh, my God. No, they're not going to forgive me this, but we were called, um, I think in homage to the soup dragons, we were called the carved wooden bookends. <laughs> they're not going to forgive me. No, if I get everyone, a call from a lawyer, you're going to have to edit that bit the out. The carved wooden bookends. We, Backlisted now has a house band <laughs> yeah, <for> everybody. <laughs> right, I think that's probably enough. It's a good point to stop. Thanks to Jonathan Gibbs, yep. uh, a.k.a. at tiny underscore camels, to our producer Matt Hall, and thanks once again to our sponsors Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Backlisted Pod, on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Backlisted Pod, and on our page on the Unbound site at unbound.com forward slash Backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, goodbye from me. Here's looking at you, kids. <laughs> If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.